I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16. I'm going to read one verse of scripture and uh, deal with a subject today that if anything will sideline us, if there's a train wreck in our future, this is what will cause it. It's ruined more marriages and more ministries and more people than anything that I can think of. And so I want to look in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse number 18. Proverbs 16 verse 18, the Bible says, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goeth before destruction. If you find pride, the next thing in sequence is destruction. When you're introduced to a haughty spirit, you can be sure of one thing, and that is that a fall will soon follow. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, would you speak to us here? Thank you for this opportunity to be in this great place. Thank you for these students that are here that have yielded their life to become more like you, to, to be transformed. Thank you for the song and the way it ministered to our hearts already today. Speak to us Dear Lord, we pray we'll give you the glory and the praise for all of it. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it was a stifling hot day on June the 25th, 1876 in a valley that the Indians called the Greasy Grass. They called it that after the narrow river that snaked its way through the hills and the bluffs. The Black Hills were sacred ground to the Indians. I had the privilege of being there this past summer and they had lived there for centuries and they loved it and felt it sacred so much so that they called it the heart of everything that is. The heart of everything that is. George Armstrong Custer had arrived there not so much in pursuit of uh, the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne as he was pursuing the glory that he felt like had evaded him since the war between the states had ended. He had risen very rapidly in rank during that war and had actually become known as the, as the boy general, but those ranks were brevets. They were temporary ranks, and after the war between the states ended, he was back to being a captain. In the West, where he was transferred, there was not a lot of action there, not many battles to really make a name for yourself, and, uh, and so there was very little opportunity to, to uh, be advanced in, in rank, and the only promotion he had was to lieutenant colonel and, uh, of the 7th Cavalry, and, and so he wasn't quite satisfied with that compared to the glory he had previously had. Out of respect for him, and in memory of his service uh, in, in, in that earlier war, the men still referred to him as, as the general. But the lack of the official rank, it just, it just ate away at him. He had been court-martialed and suspended for one year. He fell out of favor with the Grant administration. Even Phil Sheridan was weary of his actions and... He was surrounded by officers in their pursuit of Indians that he thought was so inept. There was bungle after bungle in their pursuit for these renegade Indians. And Custer just yearned for that one big moment in time where he could reclaim his glory and, 
and forever notch his place in history. There was even there was even discussions around the nation because of Grant being a general and then president that Custer just needed to grab the spotlight one more time and perhaps it would catapult him into becoming the next president of the United States of America. So here he was at Little Bighorn, boasting openly that he and the 7th Cavalry could whip all of the, uh, all of the um, Indians in the entire world that had refused to sign the treaty. What he did not know that on that day and in that valley, he would get just the chance to do that. Now you can say anything you want to about Custer, but the one thing you cannot ever accuse him of is cowardice. He was not by any stretch of the imagination afraid. In fact, he would always insist on leading his men into battle. He would not allow any of his subordinate officers to lead the charge. Custer insisted that he be the one at, at, the, at the head of the column, oftentimes with his golden hair flowing in the breeze and his saber drawn in front of him, he would charge the enemy. He had 11 horses shot out from un, under him during, during the war between the states. And so here he is now. This is, this is his moment. This is the opportunity he's been waiting for. He's back at the head of the 7th and and uh, the Grand Administration begrudgingly allowed him back into the saddle. And so here he is now, just, just almost, almost foaming at the mouth for that opportunity to make history. He was so confident that he turned down uh, four uh, companies, four 2nd uh, Battalion companies that would have bolstered his fighting men to, to a, a great number. He turned down... Um, a battery of Gatlin guns that could fire 350 rounds per minute. Didn't need those, he thought. We've got this whipped already before the first shot is fired. And so he leads his men forward for fame that they would pay very, very dearly for. Rather than reconnoitering the area and sending his men out to determine what exactly it was they were facing, he just threw caution to the wind. When a, when a veteran Crow uh, scout that had been riding with him advised him not to divide his men into three columns, Custer's reply to him was simply, you do the scouting and I will do the fighting. But what his arrogance blinded him to was that there was a coalition of Indians gathered there in that valley, Little Bighorn. And they had determined at that point they were through running. It was led by iconic men like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and others with them that had, that had won fame in many, many battles with the white man before. And what Custer could not see, it did not take the time to discover, is that he would face the largest gathering of hostile Indians that any white man had ever seen. And boy, it happened quickly. The air became thick with dust and the, the galloping horses, just gunpowder of tens of thousands of gun blasts filled the air and the smell of gunpowder was just so thick. The sounds of death from screaming, dying horses and men writhing in pain as they bled out in that field, it mingled with the cries of, of painted warriors. And by the time the sun set on Little Bighorn, 
that buffalo grass was stained in crimson and the mutilated bodies of 7th Calvary soldiers lay there dying and motionless beneath the scorching sun. George Custer had found his glory and his name would indeed be forever etched in history. But it would always be known as Custer's last stand. You know what I love about history? I love the fact that history illustrates the truth of the Bible. Over and over and over and over and over again. You can see the fallacies of man as every page of history turns. You can see the faithfulness of God and, and, and Bible principles and Bible truths are illustrated and played out before us on the great stage of history so, so many times. And the lesson of little bighorn is found in the verse we read today. Um, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 18, 12 says, Before destruction the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. We read the story. There's there's a great book written by James Donovan called A Terrible Glory. It's the greatest book I've ever read on Custer R., or the battle there in the Little Bighorn. And as you read that and you read about, you read about um, uh, Custer and, and Bentine and Reno and the men that died there, you go there today and they're just markers that signify where they fell and what their names were. And, and some of those men hated Custer almost as much as they hated the Lakota Sioux Indians. And when he was in trouble and being slaughtered, it was their pride that kept them from going to his aid that could have rescued what became the greatest tragedy. The nation mourned more over Custer's death than it had in any time since uh, uh, Lincoln's assassination 11 years earlier. It shook the nation. But the reason for it all, the most bungled, the most bungled uh, situation in military history, certainly with our nation's history, it all came about because of pride. And I couldn't help as I walked those fields, almost a sacred silence that hovers there. You could almost sense the tragedy. You could see the encampment of the Indians down beyond the ridge. You could stand where Custer fell. You could see where Reno hid in a, hid in a ravine, afraid and fearful to go fight. You, you could see where Benteen stood and rather than going out to help Custer, just sort of let the boy general face his own odds. It was tragic. But you know, it's easy, to, it's easy to recognize pride in others. It's not really hard. As I stood there that day, everything was so evident. But what's so hard is to spot the pride in ourself. 107 times in the Word of God, pride or proud or haughty is mentioned. And I think that that, that, that pride is the thing that plagues us more than anything in all of life. We all must struggle with it. We all battle. Satan whispers in our ears and things come our way that we tend to take credit for. Pride, pride is when we think ourselves better than others. Haughtiness is when we actually advance ourselves above others. We take advantage of our, of our prideful thoughts and and then in actuality, we advance ourselves while putting others down. 
It's all throughout the scriptures, full of warnings of how it can corrupt. And, and, and like Custer's last stand, God gives us example after example to find out what the results of pride are. It's Satan wanting to be God. It's pride. It's Adam and Eve deciding that, that they would rebel against God because they had been told they could be as God. It's Cain's anger that God rejected his works-based offering. It's Pharaoh saying, and who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It was Job's three friends that decided that they were the proper judges to look down upon him. It's David numbering the people. It's King Saul saving Agag as a battle trophy. It's Naaman not wanting to dip in the Jordan. It's King Uzziah assuming priestly duties. It's Hezekiah showing off the temple riches. It's Nebuchadnezzar saying, and who is that God who shall deliver you out of my hand? It's the stiff-necked rebellion and obstinance of Israel time and time again throughout the scripture. It's the Pharisee who thanked God that he was not like the publican. It's the elder brother who was further from God than the prodigal was. It's James and John asking for the position of prominence. It's the disciples forbidding the man who was casting out demons simply because he was not walking with them and following their path. It's Peter proclaiming that he would die before he would deny. It's Herod accepting his status as God. It's the church at Laodicea declaring, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. It's pride. Jaquel Crow once remarked, um, we know the disease, but we don't recognize the symptoms. And that's so very true. We're all aware of the problems of pride, and yet sometimes we don't recognize the symptoms in our own life. Can I give you just a few thoughts on this. First of all, let, let me say that pride causes you to overestimate yourself and to underestimate others. Pride, pride will call you to exalt yourself and, and, and to minimize the impact and the value of others. It's interesting in, in um, Psalm 135, David uh, David is praying, I think it's 135, David is praying, and maybe it's 35, and in verse number 15, Psalm 35, verse 15, David talks about men gathering themselves against him, and he calls them the abjects. It's a fascinating word. It comes from a root that means to depreciate. David talked about people that gathered around him, probably in the time that he was exiled uh, uh, running from Saul, and then the time he was exiled when Absalom took the throne. And David said, there are people that are gnashing on me with their teeth and, and they are constantly depreciating my value. Can I tell you that pride causes us not only to overestimate ourselves, but it causes us to underestimate or depreciate the value of others. I think that's the chief characteristic of pride. It's the Pharisee comparing himself to the publican and and, and seeing himself as, as more valuable, as superior, but his estimation of his value was far from accurate. He said, uh, uh, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. But the Bible said it was the publican that walked away, forgiven. And the Pharisee that carried the heavy weight, the load of his pride, was still deep within him. C.S. Lewis said, pride gets no pleasure 
out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest, once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Now wouldn't you think, and at least I did when I first entered the ministry as a 17-year-old boy, I, I, I tended to have a, a little bit of a rose garden view of what the Christian life and the ministry would be like. We would think that in the Lord's work, we would be aware that it's not by our might or by our power, but by His Spirit. And that's what God declares to us. But pride causes us to self-promote. Pride causes us to see ourselves in, 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 in a more noble light and to place ourselves above, above others. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 3, Paul said, For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And the most dangerous thing in all the world, I think, is not, not just someone who is deceptive, but when we get to the place to where we write our own press reports and we believe them, we become self-deceived deceivers. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And what happens, we begin to ask questions that, that reek with pride, you know. It happens in the ministry. Why is his church larger than mine? You know? Why, why is his church growing and mine is struggling? How come he has such nice facilities? Why did his church honor him on his anniversary? Why, why did they buy him a new car? I've talked with guys in the ministry that were, that, were, that were just eaten up because somebody else was blessed. I've known guys that have resigned their church because their church didn't grant them the perks that the other guy's perks granted him. And they became, they became dissatisfied and, and disillusioned. Why did this church, how could they possibly afford to send him on vacation? And why did he have to post it on Facebook of all places? So the rest of us could read it. Pride leads to every other vice, someone wrote. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And if we're not careful, if we're not very careful, I want to tell you something. We can get to a place, even in college, where, where things can enter our heart and we can begin to compare ourselves to others and allow pride to get in. Amy Carmichael said this, If the moment I am conscious of the shadow of self crossing my threshold, I do not shut the door, and in the power of him who works in us to will and to do, keep that door shut, then I know nothing of Calvary love. It's a great warning. When we get to the place to where we're looking down on others and observing how we might somehow be better than them, it's because pride's entered our hearts. Second thing I want you to know is that pride gives us a sense of entitlement. You know what pride does? Pride will whisper to you that you deserve it, that you've got it coming, and and, and it makes us place expectations on others that ultimately benefit us. It elevates our needs uh, and our wants above, above those of the other. That's what, the, that's what happened to the elder brother. The Bible said when he came in and, and saw all the commotion and the celebration over his brother that had come home, it said he was angry and would not go in. He would not go in. And so the father who came and greeted the prodigal, now comes and greets the elder brother. 
who while he lived in the, in the home with the father, in all practical purposes, he was as far from the father as the prodigal was when he was in the far country. And his complaint to the father was simply this, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandments, and yet thou never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Rather than rejoicing uh, over what God had done in the life of the prodigal, um, he, he became entitled. He, he felt like that he deserved some things and he whined and felt cheated. Years ago in my ministry, I had gotten to a place in, in, a, in, in a second pastorate I was at that I convinced myself that I had, I had stayed on the firing line long enough that there were some things that should be coming my way. And so I determined that, that I was going to arrange things to where I got some things perhaps, I can't even remember all that it was, but perhaps it was some, some salary and things, needs that my family had. And, but it came in a, wrong, in a wrong spirit. I remember sitting in my mother's house and my mom was my biggest cheerleader, obviously, and she felt like I deserved everything in all the world. And so I remember sitting in her living room and I said this to mom. I said to mom, I said, you know, mom, I think I've got this coming. And then I said this. I said, I think I've earned my stripes. And of course, mom just agreed with me. Well, son, I'll be praying for you. I went and got out in my car and was driving this 65 miles back to my home in a little town outside of Savannah. And mom, mom wasn't with me. But the Holy Spirit was. And his attitude toward me was a lot different than mother's. I remember the Holy Spirit just so speaking to my heart. And, and I had not even gotten out of their driveway. And the Holy Spirit impressed upon me this thought. So you give out stripes now. Oh, so, so, so now, now you're the one. You're the one that determines when you deserve. You're the one that determines the accolades. You, you now... You get to hand out the stripes. And then the thought, if you got what you deserved, you'd die and go to hell. But God saved you by his mercy and his grace. And the honor of your life is to serve the king of kings. And I was so smitten on that ride home. I began to confess my pride to him and when I got to the house, I called my mom. I said, Mom, I got to apologize. And she said, Well, son, what do you need to apologize? And I said, I, I got to apologize for what I said. And, you know, she began to say, No, no, no. I said, No, 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 Mom. No, the Holy Spirit did a work in my, in my heart. I have to get this right. And so I apologize. I want to tell you, pride can creep in in such subtle ways and make us feel entitled like we deserve things and, and that others owe us things. And it's so easy to become despondent and depressed and wrapped up in those feelings if we focus perhaps on what others have. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Let me tell you something else that pride does. Pride will exile us to individualism. Pride will exile us. It'll, it'll make us believe uh, in the importance of me. It'll make us believe that we need no one else in all the world. Do you know that God created us for community? 
That's why he gave us. That's why Jesus instituted the local church. That's why the nation of Israel, that, that those tribes, there was community there. That, that's, that's so vital and so important. In fact, the Bible says he sets the solitary in families. He, he gives them as a gift community in their life. And so it's important, but what pride tells us is that we, we need no one else and it causes us to set ourselves up as the standard for others to attain and they must meet our approval. We, we live in an echo chamber. We're surrounded by people who agree with me or appear identical to me. And it's all because I see myself as, as the most important. Paul wrote the church at 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He said, In these things, brethren, I have a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? If thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it. Church of Corinth had a me problem. They were probably the most talented of all the churches in the New Testament, and yet they were filled with division and strife. They even argued, can you imagine, over who it was that baptized them. They became, became worshipers of men. And prideful people have a struggle harmonizing well with others because all they want to do really is listen to their own voice. They, they have no ability. They don't know how to blend. He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. Proverbs 28 verse 25. Proverbs 13 10. Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. And social media today is, is, is so available to us and it allows us uh, almost a safe way hiding behind the screen to set ourselves up as the authority in any given area. And we boast. And we're prideful. In the South, we call that hogwash. I want to tell you, there's a lot of hogwash on social media. I look at people sometimes posting their pictures, people that I've counseled, counseled on the difficulty of their life, and yet the very next day they're, they've got this image that they're projecting of how great things are going. It's, it's tragic. We become individualized. And don't recognize our need of those that God has placed in our life. Pride also puts distance between us and God. These six things that the Lord hate, seven are an abomination unto Him. You know what bats lead off in that lineup? A proud look. Number one up to the plate. God hates six things, seven are an abomination. Who bats first? Pride. God said, I, I hate a proud look. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. God hates pride because it convinces us that, that we have no need of God. What it actually does is it, it makes us our own God. And even in the ministry, we can... We become, can become so well-oiled. You know, it's like the church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I think the church was running fine as far as all of the programs and the schedules that they had, but they didn't recognize that God wasn't involved in what they were doing. We can become so polished and, 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 and so adept at, at all of our professionalism and, and all of our programs 
that we don't realize that we're running on our own power. We're under the auspices of the flesh. We've, we've lost our recognition of the value and the importance of God. We've become humanistic, even in ministry. I love conferences and I love spiritual leadership conference in particular, but the one thing I leave spiritual leadership conference in and the one thing I hope you take from, from West Coast Baptist College is this, it, it, it's, it's, not just, it's not just copying and pasting the things that you see done here. It's the power and the spirit behind how they're done. The thing that I leave this place with it's not a need, though I learned practical things that have helped me in my ministry. The overwhelming thing that is impressed upon my heart in spiritual leadership conference and, and when I'm able to visit this campus is the fact that I need the hand of God in my life. More than a list of how-tos, there's a stump somewhere in the back 40 where you can get on your face before God and God can empower you and place his hand upon your life and use you. Pride puts distance between us and God. It makes us convinced that we don't need the Lord. Listen to this verse, Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. See, when I... I feel like I can do it on, on my own. And I've been there. When I get to a place to where I feel like I've got this, I can do this on my own. You know what God does? God says, okay, I'll let you. And some of the worst blunders of my life, some of the biggest failures of my life was when I felt like I could strike out on my own and chart my own course and get it done. And I didn't spend the time that I needed to do. I was so blessed by, by what Dr. Getz said about signing up for a time of prayer for an offering, getting alone with God, fasting, asking God's hand upon your life and his hand upon this ministry. And I would suggest to you that this incredible oasis in the middle of a desert, both literally and spiritually, I want to tell you this place has been built by prayer been built by the power and the hand of God. James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace, wherefore God saith, he resisteth the proud. He, he, he's, he's not, there's no embrace. God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way in the forward mouth do I hate. I want to tell you, when we allow pride in our life, it separates us in our fellowship with the Lord. Last of all, let me just say this, and that is that pride leads to prayerlessness. We're told to pray without ceasing. It's a command. But prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. The wicked, Psalm 10:4, through pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. That's a, that's a strong statement. God said the wicked through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God's not in all his thoughts. When we get to the place to where we don't recognize our need for the Lord, we feel like we can get it done without him. It's because, it's because of the wickedness of our pride. We're, we're not too busy to pray. We're too preoccupied to pray. Somebody said this. I, I thought it was good. One of the great 
uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Well, we have time for almost everything, do we not? We're deceived into thinking that we can do life our way. We think that we don't need God for some reason every hour. And so we go it on our own. On our own. Now, now, this is what I want to say to you. I'm, I'll be 65 in August, the 30th, if you want to write that down. I'll give you my address later. Can I tell you I've wept far too much over friends of mine that once stood with me. Guys that got down <clears throat> in Bible college next to the laundry room, washing machines and dryers. We got on our face and begged God for his hand on our life, that God would just use us. God, would you just use me? When I, when I, when I leave this place, God, would you, would you fill me with your power? Would you have your hand upon me? Would you let me make an impact for your honor and your glory? And I've wept on my face before God because those friends of mine that we began with so oftentimes are no longer in the battle. It was the greasy grass. It was their last stand. Pride got in and they became impressed with who they were rather than remembering the pit from which they were digged. And pride brought them. Well, their names are remembered, but they're in whispered tones at fellowship meetings where friends gather at a table and ask, has anybody seen? Have you heard from? And there's a sadness in the voices. The fame is not that which they sought. Look at your heart. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Ask God to, to reveal to you the areas in your life that perhaps have become infected by pride. I've been in the ministry for 40-something years. Can I just be real honest with you? I have to stay on guard all the time. I have to constantly be watching. Constantly be aware of the fact that I'm not somehow, in some subtle way, promoting myself and trying to claim honor for myself that belongs to Him.